Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn. We're coming back this week with the final segment of our The Two Mrs. Grenville's arc, The Settling of Scores. A lot of people are going to make a lot of compromises to cover the shooting of the century up, the whole sordid affair. There's a lot of money spent, a lot of favors called in, and a lot of deals made. Ann Woodward will not go to prison. In fact, Ann won't suffer any legal ramifications, but Ann will suffer human ones. Everyone in our cast of characters will suffer the human kind of consequences. Let's investigate. It is here in the wee small hours of Sunday, October 30th, 1955, where we enter our story this week with the two shots that ring out at the Playhouse, Anne and Billy's home in Oyster Bay, Long Island. Although Anne is known as a terrible shot, Anne does like to shoot. And frankly, it's not hard to miss when the target is nude, 10 feet away and shrouded in the darkness of night. Anne will call her lawyer, Saul Rosenblatt, and will call the police as well, and authorities do arrive at the property, thinking that Anne has shot the prowler that has been creeping around Long Island. Huzzah, she's a hero, but no, Anne is not. Anne will tearfully explain that she shot her husband, thinking he was the prowler. Anne's importance and the Woodward name just don't get the local cops to come out, The chiefs in charge of Nassau County come out to investigate. And no matter which cop you're with, the local or the county, everybody thinks things are not quite as they should be in the playhouse. One of the first officers to arrive will tell the Nassau County detective when he gets on site, this one is a Lulu. See, nothing looks right as an accidental scene. Most working beat cops are not used to seeing the inside of this kind of home, but the thing that I find that they are most taken aback by is the fact that Billy and Anne sleep in two separate bedrooms. There's a lot of talk about this. This seems to stun some of the cops on the scene. They think this two separate bedrooms thing is just a little hinky. Also, cops are swarming the home. And Anne is in a negligee, cradling Billy's body, but also wearing a bra. And the cops ask her, like, did you put on a bra because we were coming? And Anne says, no, I always wear a bra to bed. Like, Anne has always been very proud of her breasts, apparently. But this sort of confuses the cops. But there's no question that Anne did it. She admits, I did it. I thought he was the prowler. She is weeping. It's a pretty dramatic scene. But again, the cops are a little suspicious. The body is in the wrong place for you to be shooting him if he's a prowler. Also, Billy's nude like he just got out of the shower. There's no sign of forced entry. There's no sign that an intruder has been around. And let's not forget the artillery in the basement. Now, Anne's lawyer, Saul Rosenblatt, will get a nurse for Anne immediately, like on the scene. And Anne is understandably distraught. And the hired nurse comes in and sees all of practically a pharmacy, dozens of bottles of uppers and downers and everything in between, 
and this nurse will quickly confiscate them, thinking Anne is potentially at risk for a suicide attempt. The district attorney, Frank Galata, arrives on scene and says poor Anne is so traumatized that she needs to rest. And Anne is sent to Doctor's Hospital in Manhattan, arriving on a stretcher, and promptly squirreled away for the next three weeks. Anne will take her jewels to the hospital with her, though. She'll ask about her jewels before she actually asks about her kids upon intake. The authorities say that preliminary questioning has happened, but this case is already making headlines the morning of October 31st in the New York Times. In this article, a day and a half later, Frank Galata, DA from Nassau County, says he's pretty sure the death is accidental. The chief of detectives in Nassau County, Stoisavent Pinnell, says the same thing. This is way more likely to be an accident than a homicide. Now, Ann Woodward is not housed at the local precinct like every other suspect would have been. I mean, there's no question. We know who died. We know who killed him. Why is Ann not in custody and instead in a private hospital? This is preferential treatment for sure. In another part of our fair Gotham, Elsie Woodward is waking up that Sunday morning in her East 86th Street home, and Elsie receives a terrible call. As soon as Elsie gets the news she knows, it is validated for her that every feeling that she has ever had about her daughter-in-law Anne is real, and that Anne killed her precious son Billy in cold blood. And now her son's death is headline news? This is Elsie's worst nightmare. Everyone is talking. Elsie will immediately make a call to her lawyer, beginning the process of attaining custody of her two young grandsons. Elsie this day will also send a lawyer to Doctor's Hospital with some messages for Anne. Anne is told that Elsie is going to provide a defense attorney. And Anne at this point is really shocked, thinking... How could you think I have done this on purpose? And Anne doesn't really say much besides, no thanks, I have my own lawyer. Dutifully, the messenger comes back to Elsie, and now Elsie really knows. Why does Anne already have an attorney? This even more than validates it for Elsie, and now Elsie really is on the move, making calls to influential people in their circle not just for legal maneuvering, but to tamper down the whole thing. It is estimated that Elsie Woodward is going to spend somewhere in the $400,000 range to make this scandal go away. Elsie has not only called lawyers, but she's also called on her private investigators as well to do some quick work. So Elsie's had a few guys hunting around, investigating, so to speak, and trying to get the goods to determine exactly how bad a trial would be, not just for Anne, but for Billy, too. When the investigators report back, Elsie now knows about Billy's numerous affairs and visits to brothels. She knows of Billy's violence to Anne. She knows of his affair with Marina Torlonia years before. She also knows about the current affair that Billy is having with the second cousin, who is the one who made the phone call at Edith Baker's party. Elsie also knows about the drunken public fights and the very loud outbursts where Anne will accuse Billy of lovers both male and female. 
Now, Elsie knows of Anne's shady affairs, too. It's not like either party was faithful. But Elsie will say publicly that she feels as sorry for Anne as her poor son. Privately, Elsie knows Anne did it on purpose. But here's Elsie's compromise. She is not going to let her son's name or her family name be dragged through all of it. No way, no how. Not going to happen. Billy's funeral is held November 2nd, 1955 at St. James's Episcopal Church. 900 mourners will gather to say their goodbyes. Limousines line the streets as well as spectators. Elsie forbids Anne to attend, although Anne is allowed to provide the flowers for Billy's casket. Anne will send red and white carnations, red and white being Nashua's racing silks colors. Now that Billy is buried and Anne is ensconced in the hospital tower, lots of watchers in the high society set are calling for Anne to face prosecution. A few of Billy's friends really do continue to stir this up. Life magazine is about to have her cover story that reads The Shooting of the Century. And it's no secret, like no one's ever liked Anne. She was always a little too much. Never quite our kind, dears. Dominic Dunn will say when those ladies turn on you, you are done for. And well, Anne was. Privately, they will all say that they were terrified of Anne. They know about her love of shooting on safari. They also know she's a horrible shot. Some are even more crass saying that we're glad she killed Billy instead of the grand prize-winning horse, Nashua. Naturally, it is discussed that privately, of course, no question, killed Billy for the money. She would stop at nothing. I mean, privately, y'all, they're all talking. New York High Society believes this is an intentional shooting. A guest at the Baker party will admit Anne was setting us up the whole night for this exact outcome. No one believes Anne is innocent of anything, or that it is just an unfortunate accident. But for the public, and the press, and the grand jury, everybody's going to play it Elsie's way. The public and the press are certainly seeing that Anne is getting preferential treatment, which will naturally lead to more rumors. Oddly enough, three days after the shooting, the mysterious prowler is finally caught. His name is Paul Wurst, and he's a German immigrant who has been prowling all about Long Island. Paul Wurst is arrested with a stolen vehicle, jewels, and guns, and naturally questioned about the events at the Woodward home on October 30th. Paul will say that he did break in 24 hours before the shooting. I was there, but I was not there on the night that Billy was killed. Well, in the precinct, there's a German police officer, and knowing they share a common connection, this German police officer thinks that Paul knows more than he's telling and really gets Paul to think about it. And the following morning, Paul will summon that officer to confess, saying that he'd been living on the Woodward property for days. He'd he'd been fantasizing about Anne. He'd been looking in her window. He would watch her undress. He will climb a tree to look into the second story. It is probable that more than likely he was the noise in the home that night. See, he's trying to break in. According to him, 
He sees Ann and Billy go into different rooms, validating that they are brother and sister. So he's going to go make a nighttime visit to Ann. I'm not exactly sure, but he'll lose his balance. And at this point, he hears shots and screams and Paul Wurst gets the heck out of there. He is terrified he's going to be accused of murder. Paul Wurst is not accused of murder, but he will go away to the joint for about six years for his burglary crimes. There is a preliminary appearance on November 21st, 1955, three weeks after, y'all, at the Nassau County Courthouse. This is the first time Anne has been seen in public since the shooting. She is pale. She is gaunt. She is questioned in pre-grand jury questioning for about three hours. Dominic Dunn will call this the performance of Anne's life and says she comes in looking like her own grandmother. Immediately after the pre-questioning concludes, Anne is taken to Elsie and to the Woodward home for the reading of Billy's will. And here is the bargain for how all of this is going to shake down terms defined by Elsie. Elsie's making the devil's bargain here, or the bargain with the devil. Anne is to be financially provided for, but Anne's sons aren't her sons anymore. They will be coming to live with Elsie, and Elsie will be the adult in charge of their lives from this point on. Anne is encouraged, well, forced really, to complete her mourning out of the country. Please leave this city as fast as you can, Anne, which Anne will. What's the trade-off of this bargain? Anna's never, never, not once to talk about any of it. Anna's never to speak of it, to the press, to anyone really. And if Anne does, Elsie will cut her off completely. Now, a lot of people in high society think Anne has killed Billy for the money, but they don't know, and Anne certainly doesn't know, that Billy has already revised his will. He's revised his will a few times. In so doing, he leaves Anne the very smallest amount possible as defined by law. This amounts to about $500,000 a year. Elsie lets Anne know that she will now be supporting Anne. I will have your kids and you need to keep your mouth shut. I will protect you, but it's going to cost your kids and your silence. What choice does Anne have but to agree? And now we arrive at the grand jury. November 25th, 1955, there are 31 witnesses who testify. The cops are there doing their ballistics, doing their stuff. Guests from the Edith Baker party do appear. The lobby of the grand jury looks like a cocktail party. But every guest that does testify all says the same story. Both Woodwards were worried about the Prowler, and would have no reason at all to shoot Billy, they were a lovely couple, ideally suited for each other. The grand jury hears these same lines over and over. In Anne's testimony, again, looking like her own grandmother, no makeup, haggard, thin, anguished, Anne will tearfully and quietly tell how she and Billy were both terrified of the Prowler. They'd been terrified all day. They went to eat at this party. Then they went home, they armed themselves with weapons, and will explain that she was awakened with the sound, and will simply fire her 
shotgun at who she thinks is the prowler, which is what Billy told her to do. The grand jury does not hear about Anne's tantrums or the throwing things that she's prone to do or the various affairs on both sides of the marriage or the violence that has happened in the marriage. The grand jury hears that the couple was terrified of a prowler. That prowler was arrested three days later. They've heard his confession and they see Anne looking like death warmed over. There's a 30-minute deliberation, and the grand jury comes on back unanimously. No crime has been committed here. No bill, no trial, no crime. The Woodward name and Elsie will keep Anne out of prison, but out of prison isn't exactly enough to buy Anne's happiness or happiness for her kids. Anne knows it's really over for her when Elsie, in an effort to stand by Anne, Elsie and her daughters will always publicly stand by Anne. Elsie invites Anne to a ball that she's hosting in the springtime, her April in Paris ball. It's held at the Waldorf Astoria, and at this party, Anne is shunned. She's an outcast. Wallace Simpson looks right through Anne, as well as every other friend Anne thought she had in upper crust high society. Anne Woodward is blamed for destroying the entire family. And quite frankly, Anne's finished. Done. And done. Now's a great time to hear from our sponsors. We'll continue our investigation on the other side of a short break. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? In less than a month after she shot and killed her husband, Anne is exonerated by that grand jury. She's not going to prison, but there's another sentence waiting for her, and perhaps a more diabolical one. Prison might have been kinder to Anne, because Anne's fully snubbed by society now. She's not invited, she's not included. A friend will see her on the street after the grand jury just looking a mess, and will ask her, Anne, how are you, darling? And Anne replies, I will never be the same, never, ever. Anne will move from the Woodward properties after the shooting, using her widow's funds to buy a townhome at 1133 Fifth Avenue. This home is purchased from the estate of Hattie Carnegie, but Anne doesn't really actually settle down in New York City. Elsie has commanded that Anne's widowhood should be spent anywhere but the city. So Anne, with her half a million dollars a year and nothing in the city to keep her there, will travel. Anne, with her last high society set kicking her out, is going to find a new set. An international set who kind of like her notoriety. Anne Woodward is internationally known as the woman who killed her husband and got away with it. And also creates quite a stir wherever she goes. I mean, it's Anne, so there are men, there are plenty of men. There are some relationships that last for a little while, but Anne's life is really going downhill. She's still drinking. She's still taking a lot of pills, most certainly. 
but Anne's traveling the world and causing scandal pretty much wherever she goes. Initially, Anne is spending a lot of time drowning her sorrows at Harry's Bar in Venice. In Madrid, Anne Woodward is locally known as the Matadora, the killer. In Venice, there's a noblewoman who chides her husband. Not for flirting with another woman, that's perfectly acceptable, but for flirting with Anne, saying, must you flirt with a murderess? In Marrakesh, Anne is asked to leave the home in which she's staying because she's been found to be luring local boys over the wall. These international travels will land Anne in the line of fire of Truman Capote in the early 1970s. See, Truman knows the story. His friend CZ Guest was at that Edith Baker party. She knows how it all went down. Not just CZ, but all of Truman's swans have certainly kept him filled in on all the news. Truman has kept clippings for years about this case. He's in the know. And it is in B. Ritz that, well, here's how it all goes down. Anne and Truman are in the same hotel, the same restaurant, in fact. And they're both seated, and Truman is around the corner. He's like a pillar away from Anne. He is not in eyesight, but Truman is in earshot. Anne is told somehow that Truman is there. And, like, Truman's no stranger to Anne either. And Anne will make a pretty nasty remark in regard to Truman's sexual orientation. Truman, at this point, looks around the corner. Anne attempts some kind of an apology, but Truman says nothing until the following night at the hotel bar where Anne is there drinking and Truman comes in and will raise his fingers like a gun, aim them at Anne and yell, bang, 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 bang. And that's Anne Woodward's name from now on with Truman Capote, and he is declared war on Bang Bang. See, in the early 1970s, Truman Capote has been on the hook for a long time. His publishers have paid him a great deal of money for a book that never seems to be forthcoming. Delay after delay, and by this time, Truman really needs to get something written And this will come in the form of a series of short stories called Answered Prayers. See, Truman's been digging back through his old diaries and journals. And well, he has a lot of gossip from his swans too, right? And it would be mighty easy to write about Bang Bang and hurt her like she hurt Truman. This will be the basis for one of the crueler storylines in the short story, Lakote Basque, 1965, which does appear in Truman's work, Answered Prayers. Lakote Basque is a restaurant located across from the St. Regis Hotel. It's a tiny place. It's a swanky place. It accommodates to swans and famous clientele. There are naturally preferred tables and all that jazz. Truman Capote came there a lot with that black and white composition book back when he was planning his 1966 black and white ball with all of his swan friends. In this story, I I don't know, perhaps the nastiest thing that's ever been written in fiction, Truman Capote is narrating under the name of P.B. Jones, which Dominic will take and switch it to B.P. Basil Plant for his narrator nickname in The Two Mrs. Grenvilles. 
Within Lakote Basque, Truman sells everyone out, all of his swans and Woodward, and honestly himself too. Here's a basic rundown of the Anne Woodward arc of the story in Lakote Basque. Anne Woodward, who was called Anne Hopkins in Truman's story, doesn't even disguise her first name, enters the restaurant Lakote Basque, creating an immediate stir where the Bouvier sisters, Jacqueline and Lee, take note. In Truman's retelling of this saga, Anne is a beautiful redhead from the West Virginia hills, whose Manhattan Odyssey had taken her from call girl to the favorite lay of one of gangster Frankie Costello's shysters, to ultimately the wife of David Hopkins, naturally William Woodward Jr., who is the handsome young scion of wealth and one of the bluest of New York's blue bloods. Anne is another of the many Holly Golightly figures who make their appearances throughout Truman's work. He likes to write about beautiful social climbing waifs from the rural South who move to New York and reinvent themselves, not unlike Truman's own personal journey or his mother's. But in this story, Anne continues to philander and David, the husband eager to divorce her, discovers that Anne had failed to dissolve a teenage marriage undertaken back in West Virginia, and thus they weren't legally married after all. Terrified that her husband will kick her out, Anne will take advantage of a rash of break-ins in the neighborhood and load a shotgun, which she keeps beside her bed, Anne will fatally shoot David, claiming she mistook him for an intruder. Anne's mother-in-law, Hilda Hopkins, naturally Elsie Woodward here, desperate to avoid a scandal, pays off the police, and an inquest never brings charges against Anne for murder. Yikes, y'all, this is only one of the plot lines in this story. It's so nasty. We will get to them all. Now, this is 1975, when Esquire magazine is wanting to publish some of these stories for Truman's upcoming book. By the fall of this year, Anne is a little financially down on her luck. She's spent most of the money she had on men, on trips, on property. But a friend in publishing will call Anne overseas and give her the warning, hey, Truman Capote is about to drop a story in Esquire magazine in which you're a partial plot line, honey, and it accuses you of bigamy and murder. Anne will promptly hop a plane to New York, where this friend has sent Anne an advanced copy of the piece. Anne will read it, and will also go visit a number of churches that day in the city. Churches that have meant something to her over her time in the city. Anne will dismiss her servants for the night, and son Jimmy will come for a visit too. Jimmy's in his late 20s now, and Anne, who hasn't seen him for a while, comments on his appearance. Jimmy's lost a lot of weight. Honestly, Jimmy's had a pretty tough road. He's addicted to drugs. He's come back from the Vietnam War. And Jimmy has not wanted anything to do with the family or the Woodward name or the money. He he wastes it all. He spends it all. Jimmy has always held Anne responsible for the death of his father. And Anne and Jimmy have had a fraught relationship for years, but this night they do fight. Jimmy accuses her of awful things and leaves angrily. Anne will have one other friend over that night. She takes some pills when her friend is there and tells her friend 
I'm at peace with God. Anne is found the next morning, October 10th, 1975, by her maid, perfectly made up, peacefully posed, lying in bed, dead at the age of 57. There's a notepad by the bed with the words, don't forget, on the notepad, and Anne, before her death, has written two words on the sheet, which is next to her bedside. And that lone sheet reads, don't forget, Anne Woodward. Initial reporting does confirm a history of heart ailments, but of course the exact cause of death would not be known until further investigation. Further investigation was done. Ultimately, the cause is found to be death by cyanide. Anne's funeral is held Tuesday, 2 p.m. at St. James's Episcopal Church on Madison Avenue and 71st. This is one of the churches she visited before her death and where Billy's services were held as well. Elsie Woodward will attend Anne's services and is reported to be in a very good mood. It's no secret that Elsie had always detested Anne and will confess during a rare weak moment, one look and I knew the whole story. And now Anne was gone. If Elsie regarded the suicide as a form of delayed justice, nobody would have blamed her. Elsie is determined to place it in the past. She'll comment, well, that's that. She shot my son and Truman just murdered her, so now I suppose we don't have to worry about that anymore. Anne will leave $25,000 to each attorney who helped her with those grand jury charges long ago. And, well, she leaves two surviving sons who are now dealing with this additional legacy on top of the one that Anne had already provided to them. Both boys go through a lot of rough times. So many rough times. And poor Jimmy will complete death by suicide three years after Anne dies. At the age of 31, Jimmy jumps from a ninth-story window, facing her own death at the age of 99 in 1981. Elsie remains unbent. She'll tell a friend, I'm just going down like a ship. All my sails are up, but I'm just sinking. Elsie will pass away that same year, 1981, at the age of 99, leaving William, her last grandson. In 1985, Dominic Dunn will use the whole Woodward case for the two Mrs. Grenvilles, and the novel will become the basis for a two-part miniseries as well. And Margaret will portray Anne Woodward, and Claudette Colbert will play Elsie. Claudette was a very good friend of Elsie Woodward's in real life. William III, the last surviving son, also has a story with a sad ending. At the age of 54 in 1999, William also completes death by suicide, this time from the location of his Upper East Side 14th floor luxury apartment. Dominic Dunn was shocked to learn of William's death and will say, it is such a tragic story, such a doomed family. When he learned my book about his mother and his family was coming out, he contacted me with just one request. He asked that in doing interviews about the book, I not mention the Woodward family name. I was happy to oblige. He was a proud man, despite all that happened. Y'all, the tragedy for the Woodward family is just immense, and the damage done to everyone. Ah, it just breaks my heart. 
the price of those human consequences are mighty, mighty high. Truman Capote is condemned, not just by high society, but all of his swans as well. There's not a great outcome for him from the fallout of Lacote Basque 1965, but never fear, investigators. We'll be coming back to Truman Capote to investigate the rest of his story one of these days. Actually, a little good news, too, for those who have asked. Done and Done is officially launching a Patreon in the beginning of February. You'll be able to support the show and in return get ad-free episodes, bonus episodes, some swag, too. Stay tuned for that. I am working it out now. More news to come that first week of February. Investigators, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Done and Done. As always, I am so grateful for you, your time, your support of the podcast, your kind reviews, your five stars, and your emails too. We have so many more stories to uncover and investigate. Another one is coming for you next Monday, always Dundays on Monday around here. Until we meet again, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at Done and Done Podcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.